Welcome back to the 42nd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be going through some top stories that pertain to, guess what, wait for it, I know you're going to love this one, definitely not a boring topic at all, taxes. We have one article talking about a quote-unquote murder tax when it comes to a clever way to regulate firearms. We have an article talking about how Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, plans to cut taxes going into a recession. And our last article comes out, and it's a little bit of need-to-know information. I'm leaving it to the end, though, for the dedicated people or the ones that just want to skip to around the 20-minute mark. And this one is talking about finally enacting some changes to the IRS that was implemented or at least proposed in the American Rescue Plan. And, of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. All right, that's enough rambling for me. Let's get into our daily debate. And my question for you today is, what is the proper way to deal with firearms? And I know you may be asking, Alex, I thought you said this was about taxes. This episode today was focusing around taxes. And yes, it is. But, you know, we have to ask this baseline question before getting into the first article. So should firearms be encouraged? Should they be discouraged? I mean, should they be heavily restricted or should gunnership be taxed? And, you know, that's really what the first article is going to dive into today. And before we get into it, like I said, I would love to hear your opinions because going into it, if you have a a certain opinion about firearms, then listening to some of the quotes from this author and the way they propose to deal with certain firearm issues, uh, it will really affect your bias. So, or at least it will affect how you take the article. So post that down in the comment section. Love to hear your thoughts. All right, first article comes from Daily Costs. Murder lets tax guns. And probably should read that a different way. Murder lets tax guns is how I would assume the author would have said it because they are have a very cute, and I'm using their words here, they have a very cute perspective on this issue and a very interesting tone when you read this outright. So after this horrific shooting in Colorado this last week, the conversation about guns really has jumped back into the front line of political issues once again. And this author starts the article with an appeal to emotion, asking us to, you know, us, the reader, to think about how these terrible atrocities, these mass shootings, or just shootings in general, affect the survivors and the family members of those that are killed. Quote, being a co-victim is much worse than just having a bad day. It is trauma that is likely to follow a co-victim throughout every aspect of their life for as long as they live. It is possible to learn to cope with gun trauma, but the best support comes from psychiatrists or psychologists with a PhD. Insurance doesn't cover that. A taxations on guns is a reasonable solution, end quote. And this is where the author really jumps into the premise that there should be a murder tax, quote-unquote murder tax. And what they're really getting at is a variety of taxes that are gun-related, gun equipment-related, and they're trying to be a little bit cute here 
And when they say murder tax, and my notes here say, I should probably say it in a sarcastic voice, that's not politically or emotionally weighted term at all. Definitely not. And, you know, they're obviously trying to be a little cute here, but also play on your emotions as a human being, saying, well, if these guns are just murder weapons, if they're basically framing the issue in a very particular light. Oh, well, the only reason for guns is to murder people, so we should call it a murder tax. And obviously that's not the only use of guns. And people who believe that guns are a necessary thing, or maybe a necessary evil if you want to take that perspective, but a necessary thing for the freedom of our democracy and to ensure that if the government does suppress our rights, that we can stand up to them, then they're obviously going to have a different opinion than someone that's reading this who is on the left. They may read that and say, yeah, it is a murder tax. All these people that go out with guns and murder people, we should call it a murder tax to really hit home the point that this is trying to lower the likelihood that guns will be used for murder. And then you can kind of extrapolate from there that it will reduce the likelihood that people will buy guns in the first place. And the author immediately loses me here. And it's not because all of their proposals are bad. One of them I really like near the end. But it's because of this tone. It's so condescending. And, and it's a really sad, cynical way to arrange their argument. And maybe it's because they're writing this article as a person who assumes that only people who agree with them are going to read it because it is in the Daily Kos, which is a left-wing publication. But if they're actually trying to make an argument and a suggestion on policy in the future rather than just trying to appeal to their base who already agrees with them and trying to be cute about it, this is not the way to go about it. And this is why even if a policy position has some logic or, or some good points behind it, maybe gun reform, it, it can be really hard to do because those that want to do it on one side of the aisle pretend that they have a certain moral righteousness, that they always have a condescending tone that I know what's best for you. I know the best thing that's going to help this country. I know best. And no, all you legitimate gun owners out there, you don't know what you're talking about. We have to take away guns. We have to restrict access to certain attachments and certain modifications because we know what's best for you and the government, and we know what's best for society when they're not even willing to listen to the other side most of the time. And even when they do listen to the other side, they can be a bit condescending. And the same thing comes from the NRA, too. They're never willing to sit down and have these conversations because they're they sit there saying, oh, well, we know it's best. Guns are actually used for self-defense. We know that at the end of the day, more people use it for self-defense than to murder a different individual. And both sides are so caught up in the fact that they believe they are morally righteous, that they're not willing to come down, sit at a table, and have a conversation that could actually change things and possibly not saying it would get rid of gun violence. I'm not saying that it would create more restrictions necessarily, but at least come to a policy position that actually makes meaningful strides while also not impeding on other side and not causing either one to have to go back to their base and say, oh, we took a loss on this one. That could actually be done at the end of the day. Now, do I think that the right would be willing to move 
in any direction that resembles gun control reform? No. Do I think the left would accept anything but that? No. So maybe it's a bit idealistic of me to say they can come to a table and come to an agreement. But if you can't even start that dialogue, if you're not willing to look past your moral righteousness and actually sit down with them, how would you ever know that there is a middle ground or a different solution that you can come up with? And that's why I really wanted to point this story out. And I know today I said today's about taxes, and I've kind of gone off on a railing, uh, a sidebar here. But we're going to get to the interesting tax proposals here in a second. I have a pretty long quote that describes what they're thinking. But I think this background and this conversation about firearms and the divisiveness and the position that both sides take is extremely crucial when you're listening to this person and their proposed taxes because some of them sound obscene and some of them sound completely normal or at least like a proposal that could actually get through Congress. And then when you hear the way they present it, like I said, it loses all its all of its potency. And I think that's really important. The way you present an argument is almost just as important as the argument itself. If you can't convince people to come down and listen to your argument, it's not going to matter. If you're condescending and self-righteous, like I've been saying this whole time, people are not going to want to listen to you. All right, so let's get into how the author proposes we actually go about in putting in place this tax. Quote, here's how it works. For every gun a person owns, they owe a murder tax. They would need to be a flat tax. I'm thinking maybe $150 a year. I'm flexible on that. But that seems reasonable. Let's call it the murder tax. We could call it the killer tax, but that's a little too cute. Murder is not cute. The tax money is earmarked for mental health support for co-victims. If they need support beyond what they can currently receive, co-victims can go to any psychiatrist or psychologist and request an appointment independently of any health insurance. The doctor does not need to be in a specific network. The money goes directly to the service provider. No referral needed. Gun owners will pay this tax on their annual tax forms for every gun they own. This is so much simpler than taking guns away from people, right? You can keep your gun, but you pay a fee, like joining a hunting club, end quote. Except for the fact that joining that hunting club comes with amenities and benefits, and you're suggesting that they just have to pay in order to own something. Now, I guess to some degree we do have policies in place like property taxes you have to pay yearly taxes just to own a house but a gun is not a huge investment like a house at least when it comes in the monetary sense when it comes to owning that house and paying taxes on it you can resell that house for hundreds of thousands of dollars you can't resell that gun for hundreds of thousands of dollars and that's what the author's getting at at some point those taxes are going to eventually outstrip the cost that you paid for that gun and it's going to make you do a little equation in your head before you buy it is it worth paying these taxes on it and obviously that's what the author wants the author wants it to be another dissuading factor from buying guns but at the end of the day, is that really just to do that to somebody who believes that they, or not believes, that actually wants to have a safety net in place to defend their family or defend themselves in a situation that goes south? Maybe someone invades their property, someone 
breaks into their house, or maybe there's a person at Walmart who pulls out a gun and a heroic citizen who has a gun themselves, who is carrying, who has all the proper permits, decides to take that person down in order to save lives. So there are lots of more aspects to this conversation that she or he, I'll just say they, is quickly passing over that I think are very important. And this is the part I don't agree with. You, you can't just tax every gun owner for the actions of a misguided person because the author is also saying, basically, this logic implies that, oh, because a person used a gun in an attack, it is completely justified to punish all the other gun owners and dissuade them from owning guns. That, that doesn't seem logically consistent to me at all. Because then at that point, we would have to say, oh, you drove, or look at the uh, truck drivers, the truck driver who went through the parade in, I believe it was Ohio a few years ago. And should we tax everybody, a mowing people down your car tax because one person decided to use a car as a lethal weapon to kill a mass majority of people? That affects literally everybody across the United States. But you don't see this author proposing that. And I know that seems like a very extreme example, but we can't let the actions of one person define how we treat the rest of that group. That would be called stereotyping or generalizations if you're trying to apply it to other things besides gun ownership. So I think that's extremely negative, and I don't agree with the uh, author here when they're making that moral statement that all gun owners are the same as the ones who choose to go out and do terrible, horrific things with the weapon that they have, obtained legally or illegally. But there is one part of the conversation that I think would be prudent and actually should be talked about, which the author says, quote, every single box of ammunition will be labeled with warnings, reminding customers not to use their gun to kill people. They will likely have warnings like tobacco, only different, maybe more like Smokey the Bear, end quote. And while the language here is very cute, I do think having some sort of label like there is on tobacco, this product is harmful uh, it's addictive. You could have the same kind of labels on ammunition boxes. This pr uh, product can cause harm and it could be deadly. And I'm not saying that that's going to dissuade people from buying it. But if anything, for the gun owners who aren't necessarily as responsible, which I don't think you should be a gun owner if you're not a responsible gun owner, but for those that aren't as responsible, maybe it'll make them think twice about leaving their gun out where one of these terrible people can steal it or having it in easy access to like parents having it in easy access to their children like some of these mass shootings we've seen where the kids have gotten these guns taken these guns from their parents so i think having that as another precautionary step that is not necessarily that hard to do it's just like the tobacco companies have to do it's probably an extra five cents to print it onto each one of those boxes for the munitions company so I think that could be an interesting solution that should be brought up, and it may seem trivial, but maybe it could have an impact, and maybe it could placate some people who want something done while also being practically meaningless to the responsible gunners who feel like the one side of the aisle or one group is trying to take their guns away. All right, so I spent a lot of time on that first article. 
Let's jump into our second article. This one truly is about taxes. I know you're excited for it. I know you're ready. Let's jump right in. The Washington Times. Virginia governor aims for tax cuts in next budget plan while navigating potential recession. And we'll open right away here with the quote. Quote, Governor Glenn Youngkin said he wants to cut taxes in next year's budget proposal, though he will tread cautiously ahead of a possible economic downturn. Mr. Youngkin, a Republican, emphasized that he believes a recession is inevitable and his administration would be, quote, very prudent in what we do, end quote, ahead of such circumstances, end quote. And as a Virginia resident, I think that this story hits home for me. I would love to see lower taxes, but I admire the fact that Glenn Youngkin's not hiding behind this governorship, this office, in saying, hey, I'm going to lower your taxes and then either screw us when it comes to a recession or say, oh, I I can't lower your taxes now and give some other reason. Even though a recession is outside his control, he's being upfront saying, we might not be able to cut taxes as much as I want or as much as I had promised because we have a recession coming. And though we have reduced some spending, we're still probably going to have to increase spending during the recession in order to get the economy back on track as well as we may just have to have some extra money saved up. So we can't cut taxes because that's going to cut our revenue too much. And I, like I said, I admire that he's coming out just outright in saying it, and he's not trying to play too much of a political game. And then again, it could be a nice political strategy getting out ahead of it. So then people like me say, oh, yes, great, great job, Glenn Youngkin. You're you're doing great. I love what you're doing here. I'll think about voting for you again. Maybe it's a really in-depth political strategy, but I see it as someone who hasn't been in the political sphere for too long being honest about what they want and how they're going to achieve their goals and telling the populace that voted him, voted him in what he's actually trying to do and communicating that to them. So Yunkin has already made it clear that he wants to protect businesses in Virginia, and though tax cuts very well could help them, a recession would pump the brakes on any post-pandemic growth we've seen over the last year and a half. But that really leaves Yunkin in a position where he can't really do anything. He's really just stuck waiting for the ball to drop and for this recession to come so he can respond to it. Because at the end of the day, if he decides to cut taxes and therefore cut revenue and the recession comes, then people are going to lambast him for cutting the state revenue. If he increases spending with recession on the way, people are going to lambast him for increasing spending. So he literally can't do too much. And it's not like it would be an easy time anyway, considering the state legislator is split. But there's a quote that came out from Yunkin last week, quote, one of our key priorities is to not be in a circumstance where we get over our skis on either side of this tax cuts or in spending, end quote, Mr. Yunkin told reporters this week. So then what what can he do? That's the question that you may be asking here. And I would argue he keeps doing nothing trying to pass partisan legislation, and yes, you heard me right, completely partisan legislation that wouldn't make it through the state legislator. And then if he runs again, he can claim that he tried to get things passed, but he was held up. 
And I think it's a strategy that worked well for Obama and may even work well for Biden. And to be clear here, I know I just praised him for his transparency. But if I, I'm saying in this situation, if I was a strategic political analyst and saying, how do we secure your position while making it not like you're doing nothing and you're actively aiding the Virginia people? Hmm. Okay. Pretend that we're doing something, but really we know it's not going to go through, so we're doing nothing. You know what I mean? And I'm maybe that's a little bit oh too high-minded. Yeah, politics doesn't actually operate that way. But I think that it's a, a strategy that unintentionally worked for President Obama. He had the full faith of the American people, the House and the Senate, when he first got into office, passing all these bills that he wanted. The people responded during the midterms, and then he couldn't get much done because the House had flipped back to Republican control. And at that point, he could just keep proposing legislation, and he won his second term because he said, I have these grand plans that I have not been able to enact because the House and the Senate has not been on my side this la- these last two years. And it got him reelected because it kind of moderated him out a little bit. It made it look like he was trying to do something while actually being protected by the fact that he's not passing legislation that's too far to the left. So I think it's an interesting strategy that could be replicated by Yunkin in Virginia. But that's not to say that he hasn't had any success during his term. Quote, the governor had mixed success working with a divided state legislator, which delivered $8 billion worth of tax cuts over the next two years, according to the Washington Post. Republicans control the House of Delegates, while Democrats control the Senate. The newly minted tax cuts are established, estimated to reduce state revenue by about $50 million per month. Mr. Youngkin was able to secure his signature plan to eliminate state grocery tax, but he failed to muster support to suspend the gasoline tax, which he vowed to do on the campaign trail. End quote. So though he's reduced the revenue, he has also reduced spending during his time as governor. Quote, Mr. Youngkin said Virginia is in a prime economic position, reaching reserves that state lawmakers thought were unattainable. By the end of next year, Virginia's reserves are to top $4 billion, or about 15% of the state's general fund. End quote. So we're definitely in a good position if a future bad economy or future recession is to hit. We seem to be preparing, and we seem to have not just Yunkin, but other leaders and even Democrats on the state level that are trying to be fiscally responsible right now before a pandemic comes in. And that's the nice thing I'll say about Virginia. For the most part, there are some very far right and far left coming out of northern Virginia for the far left and really far south for the far right. But there are a lot of moderate politicians still from both sides that are sensible and have guided Virginia in a pretty good direction, in my opinion. Though I think it can be a boring state sometimes because I'm more of a mountain person than a beach person myself, and we have some mountains, but nothing like they have out there in the West. I think we've had good governance, even though some policies I don't agree with from both sides were a right-to-work state. We've had relatively low taxes compared to some other Democratic-controlled states. We've had lots of good uh, subsidies for industry in Northern Virginia especially. So... 
I think a lot of policies that have come from both sides have been okay, and I feel like there's been great governance. And I love to see fiscally fiscally responsible leaders saying, okay, we need to prepare for this pandemic and not constantly blowing out the budget and being unwise with the tax funds that we give them. All right, so now that I'm done praising Glenn Youngkin and other Virginia uh, politicians, I know, right, me praising politicians, whew, Something has go, gone wrong here. Maybe there's a coded message in here somewhere that you can find. I am just kidding. Not that I think anyone is loyal enough to go through and do that, but don't do that. It is a waste of your time, I promise. All right, so our last article that is of the news comes from Just the News. IRS warns taxpayers of new $600 threshold for reporting third-party payments. So you may be asking, well, why, why does this matter? Why did the government do it in the first place? And I just want you to remember that when the government is in dire economic times, they always find a clever way to raise a little bit of extra funds and suck a little bit more money out of the people. So last week, the IRS announced the change that is going to affect businesses and citizens all across the United States. Quote, the IRS last week warned taxpayers about its new $600 reporting threshold for third-party payments and the need to fill out a 1099-K form should taxpayers exceed that limit. In 2021, Congress dropped the reporting threshold from 200 transactions worth a total of $20,000 down to just one transaction over 600 as part of the American Rescue Plan, CNBC reported, end quote. So basically, this is a way for them to get more money because now the transaction threshold that actually has to be reported is lower, meaning that not only can you give less money to uh, companies and other people, third parties, essentially, or receive that money from other people without having to report it, more often, but also the fact that the amount is smaller means that more of these transactions are going to get flagged and therefore are going to have to be reported, meaning you're going to have to pay taxes on more of those transactions. And this was a provision that was really not talked about that much when the American Rescue Plan was first announced. And I can see why. It's not something that's necessarily that popular. It's a way for the government to take more money out of the uh, pockets of the people. But then again, that's what needs to happen when you pass a bill with outrageous amounts of spending. Quote, that threshold will likely have implications on regular users of Venmo, PayPal, or other payment apps. The Joint Committee on Taxation estimates the provision will raise $8.4 billion over 10 years, the outlet noted, end quote. That's a lot of money. I mean, it's not enough to cover one-tenth of the projected spending from the American Rescue Plan, or even to cover the amount of spending needed to hire new IRS agents. But, but hey, they've got to get some money from somewhere, and they've got to take it out of your pocket somehow. And I know that it's interesting probably hearing me be very cynical and quote-unquote cute in this segment. I mean, geez, I kind of sound like that that first author who was very cynical and trying to be cute about the murder tax. But I'm just really frustrated that you can see the government continuing to find new ways to tax us while spending money in such an 
irresponsible way. If the government was actually putting in policies that are going to help... See, the thing is, I'm going to sound very selfish here, but it's a mentality that a lot of people have. If the government's going to put in policies that are actually directly going to help me, then I would be okay with these extra taxes. But I am not a father or mother yet. I am not someone that benefits from the tax credits. I'm not someone that benefited from the student loan relief package, or not even package, the executive order that Biden put through. I am not a person that benefits from many pieces of legislation that the Democrats have put into place. And even if I am a indirect beneficiary, I'm not seeing that directly. And I'm not saying that I would necessarily want to. I don't want to receive a check for $600 a month from the Biden administration. And then, okay, yeah, I'll be okay with paying a little bit more taxes. I don't want to necessarily see the direct benefit. But I'll tell you now, a lot of the policies don't directly benefit me. They burden my generation with a larger debt crisis when we get older when it comes to social security a system that may well fail by the time i'm 45 and these policies that they're enacting are not actually aiding the american people or at least they're not addressing issues that i think they should be addressing therefore i find it frustrating when they're trying to take more money out of my pocket or out of the pocket of people i know just for programs that don't actually benefit us and, of course, there are the people that it does benefit it. I need to think beyond myself. I understand that. But at the end of the day, those people, though they're getting those benefits, they still have to end up paying these taxes, and they still might be affected by this $600 threshold, just like anybody else. And they should probably still not be happy that the government's giving them some assistance or a bill or legislation is helping them in some way, but they still have to pay extra money for it. And then they have to do that cost-benefit analysis. Is what I'm getting from the government in this bill, is that enough to justify how they're going to implement new tax codes, new taxes, uh, new restrictions in order to actually pay for it? And I think it's a question a lot of people need to ask and a reality that a lot of people need to face. You can't just pass legislation and, oh, the money just comes out of nowhere. Because if it does, we're probably printing it, and that causes inflation, which causes the situation we're in right now, which makes it harder for people to live on a normal salary. So these kind of economic realities really need to hit people. And I hope that for our generation who experienced 2008 but hasn't ex experienced inflation like this, I hope it's an abrupt awakening that government spending has a direct impact, of, if not immediately, eventually on the lives of you as an American citizen. All right, now that we've gone through all the boring stuff about taxes, let's move on to our little positivity segment at the end, The Daily Delight. And this one comes from The Dodo. Formerly blind dog is so happy to see his dad's face again after surgery. So can you imagine slowly, and I know it's going to start a little sad here, but just stick with me. Can you imagine slowly losing your sight and having to keep the faces of the people you love only in your memory? And, you know, honestly, it's a sad thought, but that's what happened to this little guy. Quote, for the past several months, this dog named Bob lived in a world obscured. What began as a mild case of cataracts in both of Bob's eyes eventually worsened to the point where he couldn't see at all. Bob had gone blind, and it weighed heavy on his spirit, end quote. Now I want you to imagine you finally get to see the faces of the people you love again and how happy that would make you feel. 
Well, Bob had an operation to fix his eyesight. Quote, for the first time in months, Bob could actually see the face of the man who he'd been missing the sight of the most. With that, his once withering spirit blossomed anew. He was totally transformed, Amaro said, the owner of Bob, by the way. There was so much joy, it was very moving, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos from this article, or if you want to read any of the articles that I went through here today, they will be linked in that description below that like and subscribe button. Down there, you can also find the Twitter handle, at Your Daily Flip. Try to post something, commentary, news story, retweet, quote, tweet. I, I try to be active on there almost every single day. On Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I post the link to the podcast. So if you just want to access it from there, rather than having to search on YouTube or having your notifications turned on on YouTube, you can do that. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.